Hello and welcome to The Pathway. My name is Tim Deeks, and in this podcast, we dive deep into the lives of interesting characters from a wide range of backgrounds. No matter if the guest is a leader in business, sport, media, or politics, everyone has a pathway through life. And it is my ambition that through each guest's unique story, you'll be able to take something away to put into action on your own path. So let's start walking. I am really excited to have Charlie Bazina as my guest today. He was a top homicide detective for 17 of 37 years in the force. He was directly involved in over 150 different murder investigations and one of its most respected and celebrated officers. I want to kick things off straight away because I know you're a very busy man. What characteristics makes a good detective? Well, a good detective is, I think, one of the key words is patience. And that goes on to tenacity, thoroughness of doing what you're doing and, and, and chasing every rabbit down its hole. And as a general detective, you sort of build on those. And that's the progress I took. You, you are doing various stuff. And like, um, and I liken it to being a, um, a, a doctor. You've got a doctor who's a general practitioner, then they, they, they make a decision to become a specialist in a certain field. And policing is no different. I was a general practitioner detective out in Footscray for about 10 years doing uh, all sorts of crimes from assaults, burglaries, arson, uh, rapes, armed robberies and so forth. And then as my life progressed in my career, I uh, decided to specialise in a number of areas and, uh, and then threw my anchors out at homicide. Do you have a case that sticks out in your mind as something that you'll just you'll never forget? Oh, look, there's numerous, even from uh, the basic, what I would call, not the denigrating it at all, the garden variety homicide, where you know uh, one person kills another person, and you know they're there, they give up to the police, and suggest it was just a violent argument we had, and compare that things like that remind you know in your mind because. Um, it's the most significant crime you can get up until the um, serial killer that I investigated, Paul Charles Denny down at Frankston, the underworld murders, with Alphonse Gantatano, the David Hooks um, uh, manslaughter, and things like that. So they're the ones that stick in your in your brain, and the one or two unsolved cases that uh, you know you certainly believe you know who the offender is, but you just can't get over that high bar in proving it beyond reasonable doubt to a jury of 12 that that person committed the offence based on the rules and regulations of the law that we're, we're bound by. You know, you just have to move on and um, support families as best you can. Pressure plays a big part in, in anyone's pathway. It doesn't matter what business or pursuit that you're looking for. I can't think of a more heightened pressure moment than sitting with a victim's family and having that pressure of being the one tasked to provide them with answers to what's happened. What are those moments when you're sitting in their lounge room really like? Look, very, very challenging. Clearly, when you get over the initial impact of telling loved ones that their loved one is uh, no longer with them, that's one major issue. And secondly, is uh, to tell them that they've died of violent death and being able to uh, get over that hurdle. So that's the progression you make. And then ultimately, you then go into your mode of saying to them how you hope to solve it. You then go into the constraints of the rules of evidence, etc. And uh, all they care about is, you know, will you bring this person to justice? And secondly, whether their loved one suffered as relation to the assault um, of how they died in unnatural circumstances. So 
you know, you could spend two to three hours or four or five hours with a family initially. Uh, and then that relationship lasts for about two, three, four years, or, you know, it could go on for your whole career that uh, people stay in contact with you and, you know, uh, applaud what you're doing and because you're in the media so much, sure. et cetera, et cetera. So it's they're quite rewarding in that regard. But that is, that is a major issue that you do. And you treat everyone differently because uh, everyone is affected differently by uh, death and, and, and more so tragic death. Did you have a routine that you kind of put yourself in a certain mode, if you like, before you entered those your lounge rooms? Uh, pretty much because, look, we're all human beings and I've got families, I've got grandchildren. And if you're investigating murders of, of children, you, you can't but help reflect them of, of, of your own and elderly people, you know, with their grandparents and parents and the likes, then you draw a parallel that way. But you've got to compose yourself because if you become emotional, it's difficult, um, you know. It is difficult to keep your composure, but you've got to compose yourself before you go in and and really focus on the facts and not the emotions and the personal side of things of um, of relating it back to yourself or or to your loved ones. So once that composure is there, because they are looking at you to have all the answers, uh, to give them the answers, and be able to bring someone to justice and held to account uh, for the death of their loved one. So yeah, there is, but. You know, everyone is different. Times you can't help but become emotional. Of course, because, uh, of course. emotion in their in them looking at them crying, and once you know, and, and get taking back a step. You know, you've got to go through the initial hard issues of of eliminating the family as potential suspects or persons of interest, because you know you can't be telling them as as much as you'd like to in in your case and investigation if if. If you're not satisfied that they're not involved in the crime at all, because that's the open mind you've got to have. So once you've established that they in no way known have had uh, any implication in the crime, you know, one a couple of my uh, verses to them would be, look, I'll be as honest with you as you'd want me to be um, and tell you about the circumstances of your loved one's death. Because if I don't tell them it and, and they question me, they're going to hear it in court anyway. And if you're not truthful and honest with them uh, and show integrity and they then catch you out a lie, even to try and save their feelings, it's going to hurt you considerably in the future when they hear it in court and say, well, you never told me that. So at times you get in there and there's a process you go through and once you've said that statement, often, you know, um, and there's no uh, issue against the, the gender, Sometimes the mothers would want to go out and not hear the gruesome detail of how their loved one was either, was either raped and then murdered and tortured and the likes and then the male or vice versa. The, the husband can't do it, but the um, the mother can. So um, you, you, you dictate that first and say, look, you know, I'll tell you about, you know, where they were shot or stabbed or strangled or tortured. Um, and others just say, look, I don't want to hear that. And then you will see to their wishes. Mm. I know this. I know this probably sounds like a really naive question, but it just came to me. Did Did you ever get scared by a particular case? No, I didn't get scared by a particular case. Um, you know, you you become concerned about your safety and the safety of your team members. Um, you know, uh, and you know that the if these people have had the have the potential and have killed in the past, well, what's stopping them killing me and a matter of you know still having your wits about you, um, you become concerned or scared, I suppose, um, 
when you're doing, uh, you might be doing a raid early in the hours of the morning, two or three hours in the morning, two or three a.m. and uh, you might be doing a warrant or a search warrant. You're going to breach a person's home with a mm. sledgehammer and, and find your way in there. You're in height and alert, but no, not to be scared because in that particular word, it's more being concerned and uh, that gives you heightened what what they call in, in police uh, and other uh, sort of uh, walks of emergency services is hypervigilance. Um, and in doing that, you know, you, you don't take things um, seriously. You take things very seriously and uh, puts you on high alert, puts you on the knife's edge and, and then the adrenaline stops after that and then uh, you can sit down with your team and then uh, have a few quiet ones and... Uh, discuss how the case has went or is going. Being a homicide detective, does it make you look at death any differently? Well, whether you become more acceptant of death and you then get to learn because, you know, the amount of autopsies I've been through and um, and the professionalism of our pathology unit here in Victoria, you know, you know that the body can take a lot of punishment and, and other times it can take uh, no punishment at all and it dies, you know, pointing questions, David Hooks with the old uh, coward punches yes. and the things like that. And you then know, talking to your medical people as, as a pathologist, as, as you learn so much about the anatomy uh, and how the body works. It, it, does, it opens up your mind of, of saying, well, death is inevitable for all of us, but... Um, it's not in violence, but it is maybe natural causes or um, through illness. But yeah, look, it's, it's just those challenges you turn your mind to, and you know, it further experiences you, and even at, and particularly as a team leader, I suppose, because you are looking after your own people and they've got families and kids, and and supporting their mental well-being, um, apart from their physical well-being. So it's a whole merit of of servicing the community looking after your team people and, uh, you know, the Victoria Police family as a whole and, and so on. So it's, uh, it's a big burden. You mentioned the community. It was really interesting. I, just before this interview, I was reading um, an article about Netflix and how the top five rated documentaries out of them, four of them have murder or crime as a major component. Now, you've been in, on the inside of some of the biggest investigations. In your opinion, why are people so fascinated with crime? Well, that, 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 that's a good point. It's it, it's, a, it's interesting when I did my autobiography, um, the publishing uh, group I went through, they did uh, their market research and and they found that um, women are the uh, biggest followers of crime. And I think women have a more analytical mind than what men have. Um, and I suppose the the, um, the intrigue of, of murder, what makes a murderer, how they go about committing a crime, how do the police go about solving the crime, and it fascinates people, no end, um, and hence why you know, my corporate talks are, are so popular and, mm. and why crime books um, you know, of true stories and true cases are, are so popular because they can relate to them um, and intrigues them and, and hopefully it educates them and makes them more aware of the community that they live in, and I think that's a good thing. How important are the public in solving crimes? Well, the public are the most significant tool an investigator has. Um, and it's it's the appeal that we always make to the, to the community. And, and they hold the answers because these bad guys, male, female, children are indifferent. They live somewhere. Um, terrorists live somewhere. They live next door to somebody. People go about their business. The community are the eyes and ears of, of Victoria Police or any police investigator. 
you know, I quite often quote the uh, a quote by Sir Robert Peel, the founder of the Metropolitan Police Force in uh, in London. And it's still true to this very day, and I think it appears in a lot of our police documentation to this day, that the, the police are the community and the community are the police. Because they are the ones with the eyes and ears. They are the ones that there's, there's millions of them in, in the state of Victoria. They're seeing and hearing things, but whether they suspect something, but that's the first issue. But secondly is getting them to make contact with the police and give them enough confidence that you know, if they don't want to be identified, well, they won't be identified. Um, but we need, as investigators, that breakthrough. And we always say that we're a phone call away from solving any heinous crime, and it comes from the member of the public. Sure, we have cases where we, as investigators, solve them ourselves, but then we have need of support, supporting evidence. Uh, that comes from the community of what they see and, and unlike in my day the amount of CCTV you've got these days camera footage in vehicles and the likes it's, it's devastating stuff and it's fantastic evidence for us that builds on proving the case beyond reasonable doubt to a jury of 12. Is it easier to solve a crime these days than it was when you were in your heyday at the Homicide Squad? Well yes and no it's easier because of the proliferation of as I said CCTV cameras on houses in cars in shops in the whole area look at the amount of cameras in the CBD even in London um, and many crimes being solved by the CCTV and you know there's been ones that would have been uh, hopelessly trying to be solving because of you know the the non-association between the deceased and the accused point in question as um, two young ladies that were murdered up near Parksville followed up from the city and um, you know they were integral integral by CCTV that the police um, went through all the CCTV were able to pick up a suspect and away they went from there but other than that how do you then identify a suspect if his DNA is not on a DNA database his fingerprints or her fingerprints aren't on a database and one day you might get that magic phone call which I've had in the past of cases and and then suddenly it's solved. And they'll either, they'll either make admissions or we get a, a partner that says, look, I'll now tell you that my, my partner was uh, the person for that murder. So you never give up, never give up. That's the, the tenacity of having being an investigator that you never is say, well, this is hopeless. That you've got to keep chipping away, chipping away and, and do the best you can. I guess it touches on some one of the really important characteristics of a good detective, tenacity. It it often exactly. yeah it, it often shocks me how often you read about police officers being attacked whether you know whether it be at a protest or even there was a case in Elmer Road recently where uh, uh, the a bolt was fired at a police car. That's right, yeah, ball yeah. bearing. Yeah, are people willing to be more violent towards police now, or even just yeah. in a general sense than they used to be? Yeah, very much, very much, because you know. Through uh, my career, you know, we lost the fear factor. People aren't afraid of the police anymore. A good citizen certainly is. When I say that, I say that in a good way, not the fear factor that, you know, the, the fear, I suppose, that, well, probably better the word is respect. Yeah, I understand. Um, the new generations are happy to challenge authority, take them on, you know, because we've gone through different leadership people, through chief commissioners that... Um, our support process has changed dramatically and it continues to change. Where we are today, look at yesterday with the fatal police shooting on the freeway. Yes. Now, prior to that, that would have been unheard of um, because we had the coordinate contained situation where they would keep retreating, 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 but because of the terrorist issues and the like, 
um, the, the, the positions where they've now given the Victoria Police the confidence and the ability to be able to make life and death decisions more more comfortably uh, because they know the support and command will be there. But prior to that, it was softly, softly, don't do this and don't do that. And uh, that's where we lost that fear respect factor that you could walk over the police and the police will back down at every time. But uh, that time has now changed because we live in a more violent uh, community. How do you change that? Can you change that? Well, it's generational. You know, look at the violent uh, uh, games you've got there that are infiltrating the minds of the kids of today, stealing their cars, the fast speeding, the racing cars. This is all, all stuff on in their private bedrooms that they can see on their uh, on their electronic equipment. And mm. uh, I never had that growing up, and we didn't have that And uh, in, uh, in policing in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And, you know, people say, why do you have road rage? Well, you get indoctrinated as a child looking at this violence and it, it, it's got to stick because kids', kids brains are like sponges. They just think it's part of the norm and it's fun. Um, you know, the amount of, of high-speed chases and stolen cars, 13, 14, 15-year-old kids, well, that's unheard of in my policing career. But why do we have it today? Because, you know, uh, at the proliferation of, of availability of violence in, in the... Uh, in the whole um, technological world that they have there, and, and a lot comes back to also the way they're brought up with families. That um, some are very caring and supportive of children, others uh, just don't care and you know uh, let their kids run wild. So the accountability isn't there back to them, and it should be back to the parents of, of justifying and being accountable for their children's actions. Switching gears, looking at career, if there's someone listening who's interested in joining as an officer. What would be your advice? My advice would be, even though it goes, it's um, contradictory to myself, is to go out, get a career in, a, in another walk of life um, and become you know, uh, exposed and get the experience in, in other um, walk, uh, walk of life. Field, a, of yeah, a, another field. A field, field of employment, that's right. Um, because that's who you're going to be dealing with. You, know, you can join as an 18-year-old, but you haven't got life experiences. And then you become as an 18-year-old uh, police officer as I did, and you know we didn't have this situation, the complexity of the world we have today. Um, and you're the one making the decision. You're the one that's got to show leadership and professionalism. But if you haven't been exposed to a working environment where you, your accountant is going to work, working with other workers, um, and you know I, my advice, and I get a lot of uh, approaches when I'm doing my corporate talks of that in particular, well, why I want to draw what your advice would be. And um, I'd say, look, how old are you? I may be. I said, look, go and work out in the workforce for three or four years. You're still going to be young enough. Get that experience and you're going to be better positioned to join Victoria Police. And, and Victoria Police take that, I think, that gives them an edge uh, to be able to join because of the amount of, or the numbers that are applying for positions. That gives them an edge as a, over an 18-year-old. You can have all the tertiary qualifications you like, but you just can't learn life experiences without living it. And to me, that's who you are. You are a public servant. You are serving the community. And if you don't know how the community works, apart from your own family and structure, well, you're going to be behind the eight ball. Um, and, and being able to deal with, with significant business people or people in our community from the... Um, wealthy down to the down and out in the street and being able to adjust 
and deal with these type of people and, and then getting into the um, judicial process of proving things. So there's a myriad of stuff. So prime uh, advice, go out, do some another walk of life and then consider joining the police force. And uh, if you don't like it, you can say, well, okay, I've lost two years and uh, it's out of your system. Often you hear people say, geez, I've always wanted to join the police force. And if you're that driven, that, well, I was driven and um, even though you know, people would have read in my autobiography of my background, it's an ethnic uh, family, that uh, they didn't want you to join the police force. But I was driven and um, even after missing out initially, uh, I continue to do because that's what I wanted to do. It pays paid dividends and uh, I'm uh, so better off in relation to, as a person, of, of having lived 38 years in the policing community. What did you enjoy about the role most? Was it the variety or...? Well, it's still a focus of variety, that it's not a nine-to-five job. And then the aspects of the different career paths you can take. And then ultimately, uh, as a 17-year veteran at Homicide, is, is dealing with victims of crime and supporting them, which I still do today. Um, many a person comes to me to look at cases, and, and more so cases of unnatural deaths that's already been investigated. And I have issues about how it was investigated and, um, you know, because I love just giving them answers and trying to support them as best I can. And whilst you do it as a living, it's the majority you do it pro bono because they can't afford to pay a private investigator. But having an understanding of how police work, you then support them and say, well, look, the police have done everything correctly and have done everything that they could have done. And that, that gives them, I suppose, the confidence to get a, a second opinion. And other times they get let down quite significantly by the Detroit police. Mm. And that's just a sad indictment. And then you become critical. And I'll be critical of them, no problem at all, because police are highly accountable to the community they serve. That's very true. And that's, um, I'm, I'm, I appreciate how honest you've been during this. Now, if I could just get into some rapid fire questions. Sure. What, what was your first job? Uh, my first job was, uh, well, look, I had a lot of, of those part time jobs uh, as a. Uh, joined the police force. I was on a, uh, as a uh, 15, 14, 15 year old, I worked on a uh, truck delivering soft drinks and the likes around the place, uh, you know, collecting uh, in those days newspapers, fish and chip shops, collecting beer bottles and cashing things in. So, uh, but that was the, the short one leading up to your career, but no, no other full time working job uh, prior to Victoria Police, no. In your opinion, what is an assumption members of the public have about the police that you believe to be untrue? That well, it's difficult because you know police are a community, and uh, the, the human nature being what it is, you never change it. So we really can't put a finger on it because police. They might think, "Oh, police are going home and they're power hungry." The majority aren't, but there is some that are. So mm. it then becomes contradictory um, because they are human beings. They take off the uniform at the end of the day and they go home to a family and, and they go on there. So I suppose a lot is that you know, police are very good and they're very dedicated in their work. And the majority are, but some aren't. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a bit of a jigsaw. Do you have a motto or mantra that you live by? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, just be honest and uh, do the best you can. In doing that, you can sit back and say, well, this is what uh, I did and based on what I knew at the time. So, yeah, honesty and integrity uh, is, is one of the uh, key issues in relation to being a good person in any walk of life. 
I found during doing this that everyone's so willing to share their knowledge. For young people, that's all they they might not be game enough to to make the approach. But mm, what they mm. do, what they will do is they will seek out people such as yourself and 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 others to get that advice from they'll listen to podcasts, they'll watch They'll read autobiographies such as yours and they'll... That's what I love doing with the corporate talks. And, and I, I do a lot of schools. Um, I do a lot of footy clubs and the likes and trying to... I do, you know, even the, the schools I do, year sixes in leadership and, and, and tell them about decision-making and the decisions they make today and how it affects them into the future and, and not being driven by peer pressure and, and knowing the ripple effect that they have behind them, that they, anything that they do singly has an effect on their family and, and the impact it has on their family. And then tell them about history and the jobs that you've done interviewing career criminals and that magic word for all of us is regret. Mm. Sitting there and why? You can't unring that bell. You can't unhear what you've heard. You can't unsee something. And and uh, you can, all the regret, regret in the world is not going to change that. And then it'll, it'll affect you for the rest of your life. So stop and think at the time and hopefully like try and impart that experience and skill and say, gee, this bloke's been there and done that and hopefully you're doing some good and, and you're getting into some of these young minds of, of trying to put them on a straight and narrow or supporting the ones that have gone off the uh, track for a while and saying, well, yeah, no problem, I'll mentor you or assist you where I can. There is so much throughout this interview that um, is going to be useful for people moving forward. And I really appreciate your time and I uh, hope you have a fantastic rest of the day. Absolute pleasure. You take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends and join me next time on The Pathway.